Good morning. The stakes are high. The stakes are high. And so, because the stakes are high, we double down on the gospel of grace. The stakes in life, the stakes for the generations coming after us are high. So, what we do is we double down on the gospel of grace. It's interesting that I would use this in, in an introduction, but to double down is actually a term that comes from blackjack, comes from uh, playing cards. And, and what happens in, when a person doubles down is they see their initial hand in front of them, and then they double their bet, knowing that they still have a hand in front of them, but it's a very risky maneuver. And so to double down, it means that we strengthen our commitment to a particular course of action, typically one that carries with it incredible risk. We double down on the gospel of grace because the stakes are high. So if you've been following with us in Galatians, I want to read this text. It's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and page 913 in the black Bibles around the room. If you see one of those black Bibles, if you'd like to interact with one of those, grab one of those, I would love for you to do that. Page 913 in the black Bibles around the room comes after, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see uh, Romans, Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then you'll start seeing these letters, these short letters. Galatians is a letter written to a group of churches uh, in what is present-day southern Turkey. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in secretly, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, that is, bring us back into obedience to the law. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, Paul is speaking of Peter, James, and John, the Jerusalem apostles, what they were makes no difference to me, he says. God shows no partiality. Those men, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, Gentiles or non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, those who were Jewish, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Father, would you speak through your word this morning? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you lead us to see uh, the goodness of your son? And would you lead us toward application? So even if I'm not directly naming application, Holy Spirit, you are. You are showing us, and I trust that you will show us ways that we apply your word to our real life in 2019, right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, To set up the situation in Galatians, if you're just jumping in with us, Paul, this Apostle Paul, he was a violent enemy of the church. 
He was a violent enemy of the church, and he was converted on the road to Damascus. He was actually going to Damascus, Syria, from Jerusalem with letters from the officials in Jerusalem, the Jewish officials, and he was going to find Christians to arrest them and to take them back to Jerusalem shackled for the purpose of trying them, shaming them, hurting them, torturing them, potentially even killing them. That's why he was going to Damascus, Syria. In the providence of God, Jesus, who is sovereign, literally knocked Paul off of his horse, blinded him by a a bright light so that he could not see any longer, and spoke to him. He essentially submitted him right there, humbled him into the dust of the earth. And Paul relented. Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he relented. And he began to follow Jesus once a staunch Jew outpacing the other Jews around him in his esteem and in his giftings within the faith. He was a rising star within Judaism. Immediately, in a moment, on a dirt road, converted to become a follower of the real Jesus, the risen Jesus. And so at that moment, he followed Jesus' instructions, and then he went off for, for a quite a long time, about a decade and a half, to just be trained by Christ. So somehow, Christ Jesus was communicating to the Apostle Paul. I don't know if he was bodily present, showing up to him. I don't know if he was speaking to him audibly. We don't know if he was showing up to Paul in dreams. It could have been a combination of all three. But what we do know is that for about 14 to 17 years, the Apostle Paul was being trained apart from the other apostles directly by Jesus Christ himself. And in that time, as he's being trained by Christ himself, what he is doing is he's traveling around the Mediterranean and he is gathering groups of people. He's proclaiming the gospel as people believe in Jesus Christ. He's gathering them together in fellowships or communities and establishing them in churches. And he just continues to do that all throughout the Mediterranean. And some of these churches that he started were in southern Turkey, this region of Galatia. He gathered them together, and he left them on their own. He established elders there, and he went on to continue to do his thing. But what we find out and what we know about this letter from the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to these Galatians because they have been infiltrated by false apostles, by false teachers. And these false teachers were saying that the apostles in Jerusalem had sent them down to Galatia and that they were saying that the Apostle Paul was actually a false apostle and that his gospel was insufficient. And so they were throwing these Galatian Christians in this group of young churches, they were throwing them into confusion. They were distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying Paul's gospel was not the true gospel. And, the, and the, really the emphasis of their teaching was they were saying that in order to be Christians, these Galatians, these Gentiles, these non-Jews must become religious Jews by being circumcised. And not only that, but by following the letter of the, uh, of the Mosaic law, the law from Moses himself. Now, it's helpful for us to slow down for just a moment and to imagine ourselves in this scene, to imagine ourselves in 48, 49 AD, about 15 years after Jesus Christ was murdered, buried, resurrected in Jerusalem. It's helpful for us to just slow down and imagine what life would be like here. 
You live, imagine yourself in this scenario. You live in the Roman Empire. You live among Jews and among Gentiles. And 15 years earlier, this sect of followers of Jesus starts to spring up and starts, and it becomes a movement. And thousands and thousands of people are beginning to follow this man they say was risen from the dead. Imagine that the apostles here, they're still alive. They're still passing on Jesus' teaching. This is just 2004, if we put our timeline on it, 2019 back to 2004. This is not that long ago. The apostles are gathering people around them. They're teaching. They're passing on the faith. The church is swelling by the thousands. Now, travel in the Near East and in the Middle East and travel in the Mediterranean, we have to imagine it is incredibly slow. Travel, t- travel takes days at best, but really weeks and months to travel over thousands of miles. Your, your mode of travel from the Middle East to the Mediterranean Italy, Greece, Turkey, those kinds of areas, that's the only way you're going to get there is by foot, on the backs of animals, or by ship under wind power, not motor power, as you're traveling around along the coastal lands. It takes days, weeks, and really months. And not only that, but communication is painfully slow. It's not 2019. The only way that you communicate with the people around you is face-to-face, or by messenger relaying a message that tra- they've traveled long distances, or by letter. Like, that's how you receive communication. So if you're thinking about communicating from the Mediterranean all the way to the Middle East, these communications are not instant. They're very, 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 very slow. Imagine that we are among these early disciples of the, of the apostles of Jesus Imagine that you guys in the middle, you guys on the right, you are all disciples of and have direct access to the Jerusalem apostles. People like Peter, James, John, others who lived with Jesus during his life and ministry, saw him crucified, saw him resurrected from the dead. Imagine you are his disciples and Jesus just died and resurrected 15 years ago. Imagine that you guys are followers of the apostle Paul and you are following him and he has come to you. You're all Gentiles, you're Jews and, and Gentiles. Imagine that together you know of one another, you're brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're strangers in life. You haven't met one another, you haven't seen one another, you may have heard some little names here and there, but you don't really know one another very well at all. Some messengers have gone in between you. Imagine that you together have worked to preach and proclaim the gospel and gather people around the good news of Jesus Christ. And through your efforts, 30 or 40 gospel-centered, Christ-centered churches and fellowships have been established through you. Now imagine some people come out from your group, the Jerusalem Apostles group, and they say that they are from you and, they, and that you actually sent them and they come into this region of Galatia, this region that you guys have helped to establish, this group of churches that you guys have helped to establish, people from the Middle East come to Galatia, and you guys are thousands of miles away, and there's no immediate communication between you. Now, imagine you guys first hear that this group of Galatian churches, there's some false teachers among them that are claiming to be from the Jerusalem apostles, but you guys don't have any clue what these people are saying that you told them to say. What do you do? What's your first move? I think probably two things. If you're some of Paul's followers, you ask, 
are the Jerusalem apostles really teaching this false teaching that, we have, that these people have to become religious Jews in order to be saved? And then a second question you're probably asking is, are the Galatians really buying this? Are you guys, are, are, are these churches that we work so hard to establish and love with our whole life, are they really buying this anti-gospel, this false gospel? You know because the Apostle Paul is writing the letter to the Galatians, that these Galatian churches, they are beginning to swerve from the truth. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the great gospel. Dash, not that there is another gospel, so you know the issue, but you guys have no idea what the issue is. So you guys need to figure out what these guys are teaching. Are you still aligned? That's really the question in Paul's mind. And so that's the reason that he travels out of the Mediterranean with Barnabas and Titus up to Jerusalem over the course of maybe a month or so. It probably takes him to get there. It's a massive quest, and it's very important. Paul recognizes the stakes are high. Why? Because if he is preaching one gospel, if you guys are preaching one gospel and you guys are preaching another gospel, the unified church will be fractured. The unified church will be split. The unified church will become divided. Not only that, but if these Jerusalem apostles, they reject Paul's gospel, they've rejected Jesus' gospel and are swerving from the truth. And Paul knows that that... that that news, if that's really the case, that the Jerusalem apostles have swerved from Jesus' gospel, if that's the case, it'll undermine Paul's 14 to 17 years of missionary work. Now, Paul isn't all that concerned with his own reputation. He's not all that concerned with his own legacy. We see that all of the time in his writings, that he is willing readily to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. What Paul, what we do know out of Galatians chapter 1 is that Paul is really concerned with the glory of God. He says in Galatians 1, 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. He's speaking of Jesus Christ and God the Father. In Galatians 1, verse 24, he says that these churches in Judea near Jerusalem, when they heard of his radical turnabout, his radical conversion, they glorified God because of me. And so his heart, he's already mentioned the resurrection. He's already mentioned Jesus giving himself for our sins. He's already begun to admonish the Galatians for swerving from the truth all in chapter one because he cares about God's glory, because the stakes for God's glory are high. And he knows that. So here's my first point right out of the text. I've got three points this morning. Here's my first point right out of the text, out of verses one through five. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people don't swerve and don't compromise on the gospel. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people don't swerve or compromise on the gospel. Look at the text on page 913 in the Black Bibles, or Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So he's already come up to see Peter and James. He spent two weeks with them. You can see that at the end of chapter 1. He spent a couple of weeks with them just to have fellowship. Then he went away again for like 14 years. 
Now he comes back up to Jerusalem with a guy named Barnabas. You may have heard of him in the New Testament and Acts specifically. And he also brings a man named Titus who's a Greek along with him. If you go a couple pages to the right, you'll see the book, the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And then you'll also see a letter named Titus. That's the Titus that the Apostle Paul is writing to. Titus is a young pastor. He's a Gentile Greek pastor. He brings Titus up along with him to Jerusalem. Now Paul says, I went up because of a revelation. And I set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the apostles in Jerusalem, I set before those guys the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul takes this long trip with several of these disciples. Why? He went up because of a revelation. He went up because Jesus told him to go. He didn't get the big idea that he needed to go and keep the church together. Paul wasn't carrying all of that weight on his shoulders. The Apostle Paul went up because Jesus told him to go and he obeyed him. There's a principle in this that Jesus Christ cares about the unity of his church more than the Apostle Paul does, more than the Jerusalem apostles do, more than I do, and more than you do. He will see to the unity of his church. It's important to him. And Paul went up to meet with these apostles in Jerusalem in order to lay his gospel before them. There's several things that Paul was not doing. He was not asking for the input of the Jerusalem apostles as if the gospel that he was preaching needed an edit. He wasn't asking for, it wasn't, he wasn't presenting a rough draft of the gospel to them. The gospel that Paul had was complete. Remember, he'd spent 15 years getting it from the risen, real Jesus himself. Another thing that Paul was not doing, he wasn't asking if his gospel was the right one, as if Jesus had given him the wrong one by mistake. He knows the gospel that he has is the right one. Additionally, Paul was not questioning his gospel, and he was not questioning the Jerusalem apostles' gospel. What he was questioning was whether or not the Jerusalem apostles were holding to the true gospel. He was questioning whether or not they were being true to the true gospel. Are they holding to it? If they weren't, he knew that his missionary work would be undone among the Gentiles and also among the Jewish Christians that he had served. And so those that he had been leading would now be torn between the authority of the Jerusalem apostles and his authority. And there would be division in the church for the very first time. And so for any one of these two sides, the Jerusalem apostles, you'll hear me use that phrase a lot this morning, or Paul as an apostle, for any one of these groups to side with or even tolerate these Judaizers, these false teachers that had come in trying to make the Galatians Jews again, they would split the church. And the one church would become two, and eventually, probably with not much time at all, they would be at odds, and they would begin clashing. Timothy Keller says this, he says, neither side would have accepted the other fully and would have questioned if the others were even saved. Paul's Gentile churches would doubt that the Jewish churches really had faith in Christ, and the Jewish churches would also doubt the salvation of the Gentiles. They would be at odds. I spent some time recently with a friend, Chris, who has a church up in Anchorage, Alaska. Chris, is, uh, his ethnicity is Korean. And in, believe it or not, in a city, Anchorage, of 300,000 people, there are 30 Korean churches in Anchorage, Alaska. I started to ask him about this, and he said not a single one of those churches have been planted out of multiplication. Every single one of those churches have been splanted. What is a church splant? It's a church split that they call a plant. And so these churches have multiplied by division, not by commission, but by disagreement, being at odds with one another, and it's a tragic thing. 
So look at verse 3. As proof that all of these apostles were aligned, Paul's Gentile disciple, this guy named Titus, he comes along with Paul, and he is not compelled by any of the other apostles, those in Jerusalem or Paul and his gang, to be circumcised or to have to hold to any Jewish custom in order to be recognized as a Christian. Now, circumcision is a funny thing to talk about in the church sometimes. It makes us a little squirrely and, and, and uncomfortable. What circumcision is, is it's a part where you take a part of the male anatomy, the penis, and you remove the foreskin. You can say these things in church because God has created our bodies, and this is part of his word and from his word, and we need some historic context. And so uh, God gave Abraham way, way back in Genesis 17, he gave him a sign, an outward visibly demonstrated sign on the male body that his covenant people were with him and were walking in obedience to him. And it was through this covenant or this sign of circumcision. And so all religious male Jews throughout the ages from Abraham all the way through Moses, then the law was given through through the judges and through the prophets, all the way up to the time of Jesus, they would be outwardly showing this sign on their bodies. Now, they, don't, they didn't live in a context like we live in today. They, they, they are bathing publicly together. They have public bathhouse and bathhouses, and so um, people would see one another in the nude, men and women, and so people would know who is uh, visibly circumcised and who was not. And so the point being that that, that Titus here, he was not compelled by any of the apostles to, to show this sign of circumcision on his body as proof that he was a legitimate Christian. This covenant that God gave to Abraham, he promised Abraham that through his seed, through his lineage, through his very body, one of his descendants would be Messiah who would bless all of the nations of the earth. Blessing would come to all of the peoples of the earth, all of the nations of the earth through this descendant of Abraham. And we know that, that Jesus Christ is that Messiah and he has perfectly fulfilled God's ceremonial law, this law in his body. And he has freed us from this ceremonial requirement of the law as a way to have peace with God. Christians have peace with God, we believe, through faith in Christ. That is what the Scriptures teach. And through nothing else, no external action. Obedience does not save you. Obedience is an outward sign of an inward salvation and, and allegiance and trust, faith in Jesus Christ. So Titus was accepted here regardless of his race and regardless of his adherence to Jewish law. He was accepted by God and therefore he was accepted by the apostles on the basis of his faith alone, his dependence alone, by God's grace alone, the gift of salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Titus was saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone and not anything that he, would, that, he, that he did. So it would be antithetical. It would be opposite the gospel for anyone to say that in keeping various rules that Titus or any one of us could earn merit before God. So we don't really struggle with, as a church, and modern-day people in 2019, we don't really struggle with Jewish law. I, don't, I, would, I would venture to say that many of us in the room, probably most of us in the room, aren't torn between whether or not we should become religious Jews or, or not. But there are some different ways that we look to uh, the things that we do to kind of convince us that we are saved. So we often struggle with something that is called legalism. 
You've heard this phrase probably. Legalism is anything that we do as we work in our own power by our own strength to ultimately earn God's favor. I'll say it again. Legalism is working in our own power, our own strength, according to our own rules to ultimately earn God's favor. And so for us as Christians, followers of Jesus, this might include things like going to church. We may look at our attendance. We may look at something like that as a way that we are functionally believing that God accepts us more when we do go to church than if we don't. We may look to the fact that we are good people, or we may look to the fact that we are doing more good than we are bad, and therefore God will accept us. We may look to the fact that we read our Bibles and that we pray. We may look to the fact that we are not having sex outside of marriage. We may look to the fact that we're giving to the poor. We may look to various external things as these ways that we strive or trust in our own strength to ensure that we have God's approval. It's incredibly easy Incredibly easy for all of us to appeal to our own efforts to make ourselves right before God. Now, all of the things that I've just named, gathering with the church for worship, corporate prayer, prayer, singing, gathering with a community of people, reading our Bibles together and as individuals, praying together as individuals, uh, abstaining from sex outside of marriage as people, all of these things are good things. All of these things are good works, but incapable saviors. They are all good things, and they should flow out of our faith and our desire to please Jesus Christ. But we are not doing these things so that he will accept us. He has accepted us, and therefore we do these things. It shifts our heart, and it shifts our motivation. We're no longer earning anything from him. We recognize that he's just kind of backed the dump truck of his grace up to us and just tilted the bed, and we're just doing this. And out of that, then we want to serve him. We want to please him. We want to love him with our lives, and it comes out of a heart that has been turned to him. Only Jesus Christ justifies us before God. Here's a little foreshadowing, Galatians 2.16. I'm going to catch it mid-sentence here, but three times Paul is going to make this really clear in this one verse. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, number one, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. He said it again, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's plain. It's clear. It's explicit. It's potent. Right there. So these, in verse 4, these Judaizers, they slip in to spy out the freedom of the Gentile Christians, and what they were trying to do was persuade them to return to the law, trusting in their own behaviors to justify them before God. And Paul, in verse 5, says he didn't waver even or yield to them in the slightest bit. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for your Galatians, so that you're not in bondage to the law having to become a religious Jew, but we, we did not even yield. We took their shots. We shielded you. We stood in the gap. We opposed them so that you could continue to walk in freedom. And Paul will get to that refrain of freedom in Galatians chapter 5. He wanted them to have the blessing of knowing and living from this pure gospel. This is not a game of telephone. 
The content of the gospel is not a cutesy little game of telephone where we get some things right, we don't get some things right. Rather, we as Jesus' followers should be sure about the content of the gospel. What is it that God is calling us to to hold firm to? Jesus Christ is the one path to reconciliation with God. He is the one path to wholeness. He's the one path to life with God. And therefore, the, me- the message that salvation comes by grace alone, that is gift alone, through faith alone, which means trust alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, that message is everything to Jesus' people, everything. And it's that message that we will stake our flag in. You never, I never, we never get beyond the gospel. We never move deeper than the gospel. The gospel, the good news that God saves the unworthy like me and like you, that he comes to us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That news is something that becomes the entire interpretive lens by which we read our entire Bible. Bibles, meaning that we are looking for shadows of Christ in Genesis and Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in the Psalms. We're looking for them in the whole of our Old Testament, and we're also looking for explicit witness to Jesus Christ in our New Testament. He said the entire law and prophets and writings were about him. We are a people who stake our lives on the gospel. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people don't swerve or compromise on the gospel. Here's my second point. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people unify and work together. Look at verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 2, 6 through 9. And from those who seem to be influential, he's speaking of the Jerusalem apostles. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's like, I'm not really intimidated by them. Those, I say, who seemed influential... They added nothing to me. That is, they contributed nothing to my gospel. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with this gospel, the good news to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews or the circumcised. Then look in verse 8 here. You you notice these parentheses. Paul is just kind of like, there's a bit of worship going on in Paul's heart as he's writing right here. He says, for he, God, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He's saying the same God who worked through them, worked through me. We are unified. He's doing the same work. His work is unified. There's one Lord, one baptism, one church, one faith, one God. That's what's going on in Paul's heart in between those little parentheses in in verse 8. And then look at verse 9. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter's other name, another name that he went by, and John, who seemed to be pillars of these apostles, when they perceived the grace, the unmerited favor that was given to me, Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. Paul will flesh this out in, he'll flesh it out further in Ephesians chapter 2, verses, if you're taking notes, write down Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. What he's going to do is he's going to kind of, uh, he's, he's going to develop this theme of how he's writing to the Ephesians, they're Gentiles, and he's saying that, that God has, has broken down this dividing wall of racism, this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and between Gentiles. 
And he, he says that the way that this has been done has been through the blood of Jesus Christ's cross, forgiving men and women for our sins and reconciling us both to God and also to one another. And so Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law through the cross has paved the way for God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, way, way, way back 2,000 years ago, to come to fruition through Christ. All races, all cultures of the earth are equally included in the family of God through this new covenant trust and belief in Jesus Christ. Regardless of our cultural or ethnic backgrounds, being in Christ Jesus makes you and I full members of the family of God. There are no first and second class citizens in the church. Christian inclusion, it's never contingent on cultural or ethnic heritage. Never. I am as much a brother of a Haitian Christian as I am the Christian in my cul-de-sac. We are brothers and sisters. The gospel dismantles our racism and it destroys unnecessary division by promoting unity. Sometimes we need handles for how we think about how we unify with other people and when we might divide from other people. Sometimes division, it's 100% nece- it's, it's necessity in order to promote unity. We actually see that by what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's uniting with the Jerusalem apostles around the gospel, and by nature of that, he's actually dividing from these Judaizers who have infiltrated the Galatian churches. We should not elevate our unity if it causes us to minimize what is true. The truth guides us. We unite around the truth, and then we let the chips fall where they may. The apostles here, they're unified. In the Reformation, followers of Jesus divided from the Catholic Church. Why? Because they were the Catholics. We love them. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to, some of them do, um, but others are trusting in something that cannot save them. They're trusting in their works. They teach that justification is not by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. But Catholics teach that faith plus works then combine to justify a person before God. And what we see is that no one will be justified by God through works of the law in Galatians 2.16. And so we believe that a person is justified entirely and completely by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and our works flow out of that. We believe that our faith compels good works. We are not saved by good works. The two are not the same. Additionally, uh, Catholics believe that the church traditions alongside the Pope, alongside the Scriptures, are authoritative for life, and they all stand on the same footing. Protestants, we do not believe that. We believe this is elevated and is our standard for how we live. Everything that we believe and do comes from this. If I begin teaching you something that is contrary to this, you fire me. You get a new pastor. Hopefully you lovingly discipline me toward repentance, but you get a new guy. This is our standard for faith and for practice. This is our authority. Additionally, Christians divide from Mormons and from Jehovah's Witnesses. We love them. 
created in the image of God, but we believe that there's deception at play here. We do not hate them. We do not look down our noses at them. We are not rude to them. Sometimes we don't have time for the 2 p.m. knock on the door because we got other things going on in the house, but we should, as Jesus' people, live in an understanding way with them and let them know that they are cared for, yet we divide because these two um, religions, these two some would say cults, at least one of them, would deny foundational historic doctrines, such as the Trinity, such as justification by faith, such as the deity of Christ, sufficiency of the Bible. And what gets so tricky is that Mormons, uh, they're, they're, they're really kind of on a campaign right now. The Mormon church is to identify themselves as Christians. And so it gets really, really, really tricky because they're taking some of the very same terms that we use, like atonement and the gospel, and they're actually redefining them. And there's something that, that is different than what the scriptures teach. And so it, it gets tricky. And you have, to, you have to do some work and some research. But I, I would say, like, start with prayer and also start by, uh, by just, like, having bright eyes and a generous smile on your face. And just love them, but engage them. And if you want some tools for how to engage folks that come to your door, I can provide those for you. One way to think about how we divide is to think of theology like national and state borders. This is kind of a, a simple, it's simplified, um, but it's a helpful way to think about like how and when we divide. National borders would be sovereign borders that stay close to outsiders. And you have to have, you ha- you have, to have a passport to cross over these national borders. They're, they're citizens of a country. And then state borders are differentiations within the nation, but we can cross and come and go peacefully and recognizing that we may have some opposing beliefs or we may not agree on everything, and yet we are still citizens of the same country, citizens of the same family. So national borders would be these closed-handed issues like the, like, like, uh, the, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the, uh, what else, the, um, the resurrection, justification by faith, the doctrines of sin, we are fallen before a holy God. Sacraments of baptism and communion, that we observe these things as Jesus taught us. Those would be closed-handed issues. But these open-handed issues that we can kind of come and go on, these state borders that we can freely cross, they're secondary or tertiary issues like modes of baptism. Are we sprinkled? Are we fully immersed? Is it pedo-baptism where babies are baptized? Or credo-baptism where a person is confessing faith in Jesus Christ? Is it the use of the gifts in the church or the tongues for today? Uh, The use of tongues, the gifts of healing, words of knowledge, prophecy, things like that. Are those for today or are they not today? There are people who hold that they're not for today. There are people that hold that they are for today. And we are all brothers and sisters. You could hold Calvinism and Arminianism in these camps too. We affirm that we are brothers and sisters and we see things differently. Now, some groups may be more biblically right than another group. We're not saying that it doesn't matter. These secondary issues absolutely matter. And sometimes they guide us to divide peaceably from other people in order to do ministry and to follow the path that God has caused us and called us to follow. But we don't look down our noses at them. We don't scoff at them. We don't put them out. We might unite for some really good things together because we, we hold the close-handed or the national boundaries in place and we hold them together. That was my second point. God's glory is at stake. Jesus' people unify and work together. There's more I want to say about that, but I won't. Here's my third and final point. Right out of the text, verse 10. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people eagerly serve, 
and give without expecting repayment. Look at verse 10. Only they, these Jerusalem apostles, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They asked Paul and company to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. If you go way back into the Old Testament, the scriptures are all, like, they are so clear that God cares for and wants to serve and leverage his people in defense of and provision for the poor. King David in Psalm 41 once said, blessed is the one who considers the poor. This is just gushing out of the heartbeat of God here. David is a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon, the wisest man ever to walk or live uh, before Jesus, said in Proverbs 14, 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. God, these like two just cherry-picked verses out of the Old Testament, but there's hundreds of, of references to the apostles in the New Testament or people throughout the Old Testament leveraging part of the Mosaic law was for caring for the poor. People weren't allowed to, these farmers weren't allowed to uh, harvest all the way up to the edges of their fields. They had to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so the poor could come and could glean on the edges of their fields and so that the poor would have food to eat. Many of Paul's Gentile churches had more resources than their Jewish brothers and sisters. And Paul was eager to help out. He was eager to help however he could serve the poor. So what he does, it's, this is interesting. I'm going to quote out of 1 Corinthians right now, this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. Ancient Corinth was about 50 miles west of modern-day Athens. We're not talking about mythological places. We're talking about real places on a map with a zip code. We need to remember that. He writes to this church in Corinth, and he says this. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, who he's writing to in this letter that we're studying this morning. So you Corinthians are also to do. Here's the instructions. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. It's between you and the Lord so that there will be no collecting when I come. He doesn't want to have to come and exact this. He doesn't want to say, well, you pledged. Where is it? He just wants it to be ready so that whole process of conversation and awkwardness is taken care of. And when I arrive, I will send those to, I will send those whom you accredit, who you, who you vouch for, I will send those by letter to carry your gift onto those in Jerusalem, onto Jerusalem, to carry the gift from the Gentile churches over to the churches in Jerusalem and Judea. Paul was eager to care for the poor. The people in Jerusalem and Judea, they were suffering under persecution of the Romans. They're in the epicenter of Roman civilization right there in Rome. Nero and other emperors were breaking out against these Christians, murdering them and having fun with them and crucifying them and feeding them to beasts and and the Gentile Christians begin to give of their resources in order to help bolster these poor Christians in Jerusalem. Here's where we'll land. I just have uh, three reiterations of my main points, but how Jesus is the fulfillment of them. So let this hang on your hearts. Because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people eagerly serve and give without expecting to be repaid. Jesus Christ doubled down. And he became poor for our sake so that we might become right before God, so that we might be, clear, be declared righteous before God. He, by his poverty, gave himself so that we might become rich, so that we might have reconciliation and life with God. 
My second point, because God's glory is at stake, we unify and we work together wherever we can. Jesus doubled down and he gave ourselves, he gave himself rather for us to purify us from lawlessness and to reconcile us, to unite us to God, but not just to God, but also to one another. He said to his disciples in John's gospel, as I have loved you, so you are too. Love one another. Love each other. And because God's glory is at stake, Jesus' people, we do not swerve or compromise on the gospel. Jesus Christ doubled down on Satan and put him to open shame by triumphing over him by the blood of his cross. By the blood of Jesus' cross, you'll read in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus Christ has brought us near. And so, the Apostle Paul writes to these Galatian churches because the gospel is everything. And for them to swerve from the gospel, you'll see in Galatians chapter 1, I think it's verse 6 or 7, is to desert God himself. He is the one who has given this good news. He is the one who has given his son. Jesus Christ is the one who has come. And so we don't make up out of our own ingenuity different ways that we're going to get to God and we're going to tip the scales. No, like the standards for us they're not moral standards. They're not, we, don't, we don't have reconciliation with God based on our moralism. We must be entirely righteous in order to have peace with God. And God himself has made the way that we would be justified, that is declared righteous. Next week, we're going to talk about that in the middle part of Galatians chapter 2. Father, <clears throat> this needs to land on our hearts. This um, Galatians chapter 2, the entire letter here, the heart of the Apostle Paul, the eagerness to serve the poor, his eagerness to unite, but also his staunchness against those who would stand against you are all lessons for us, Lord. Shore us up in our belief. These things are not inconsequential. What you believe is what you believe. You're going to have your truth and I'm going to have my truth. This relativism that we live within in our culture, it's not helpful. There is truth and you are the standard of truth. Jesus, you say you are the way to reconciliation. You are the truth of God living among men and you are life. Help us wrestle with these things. Help us love our neighbors. Whatever political persuasion, sexual persuasion, however we identify ourselves, however and wherever people are in life, help us to love them at great cost to ourselves even. Like you have loved us at great cost to yourself. We were enemies and you have brought us near by the blood of your cross. Empower your church. Empower all of life to love them out of the love that you pour out upon us. So continue to fill our hearts with it and to pour it on us. In Jesus' name, amen.